Hello friends, I'm Ashish Tabari, founder and CEO of Axomize, and to our new listeners, welcome to our old ones, welcome back, and today we've got a real surprise and treat for you. I'm going to be talking today to a world-class security expert, Rajat Saroop, who until yesterday was Director of Information Security at BlackRock. Hi Rajat, how are you? Very well, Ashish, how are you doing? Good, good man. Thank you for coming. And I know it's been uh, quite a busy uh, period for you and you were just uh, moving out from BlackRock and I'm thinking you're joining somewhere exciting. Um, great stuff. Thank you for uh, agreeing to come to our uh, podcast today. Um, hey, Rajat. Thanks um, so much for inviting. <clears throat> so pleasure. So, man, uh, before we start, um, you know, I would like to just explore a little bit about your journey, uh, where were you born? How did you get into science and engineering? Sure. So uh, I grew up in different parts of India. Um, so Indore, Jabalpur, and then eventually ended up spending most of my time in Mumbai, uh, where I was there for majority of my life before I uh, emigrated to the United States. Uh, uh, my journey into science and engineering uh Kind of, I, I guess I did not have a choice. Uh, so because all my uncles, every, uh, all my cousins, everyone was in engineering. Uh, I guess if you are not an engineer, uh, it, it didn't matter what you were doing. So yeah, I, <laughs> so I, I got know those times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, this is great. So, so basically, um, you are a security expert, right? So um, security is um, quite. Uh, complex topic and we're going to get into that but how did you get into computer security i mean you you're saying you were born in india you studied in mumbai i mean computer security wasn't really very hot at the time and not even this hot today i mean it's getting hotter but not as common as ai and machine learning is so how did you get attracted to computer security I guess uh, it comes naturally to some people. Maybe it did. So I'll tell you how it got. I got started. So I didn't even know it was called security. You know, when kids play games in uh, in school, they actually don't know. Oh, okay. And in India, it was extremely difficult to get a hold of uh, computer games. And uh, what what I realized is, I got a hand me down computer from my brother. He um, it was a four eight six DX two. Uh, at that time, it was probably worth uh, my father's fifty percent of my father's annual salary, perhaps. <laughs> uh, and uh, I got that, and then um, I really got interested into games. So, um, but getting games in India was a very difficult thing to do. So, what ended up happening is you would get uh, these, you know. Uh, software that was burnt on a CD, you don't even know the source of, uh, and 95% of the time it would not actually work. So then you would have to reverse engineer, you know, patch some bits and bytes here and there. And at that time, I didn't even know it was called computer security or reverse engineering. It was just for me, it was a way for me to play games. So I wanted to play games. This is what I did. I patched the executables to make the games run. I would play the games distribute the patch to my friends, we'll go from there. It didn't even matter whether it was called security, it was called reverse engineering. Right. We just we just wanted to play games. We were playing games. 
<laughs> Fascinating, man. This is really interesting. <laughs> this is really interesting. And, and a cool way to get into something really is just by doing and knowing what it is about. So, hey, cybersecurity, as I said, is quite a big area. And we hear about cybersecurity in different forms. Um, you know, usually we hear about them when a malware infects millions of PCs or a car gets hacked. Yep. Can you give us a high-level view of cybersecurity? I'm almost expecting like a compressed primer on the entire field, um, just so that we can cover a range of different aspects of it, and then we can see which ones um, we would like to go more deep into. Yeah, so so this question is very difficult to answer, but I'll, yes, I'll try my best. So you're basically <laughs> asking me the history of the world. In 10 minutes. Just squeeze it into five minutes. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> uh, so I can talk about very technical topics, but I don't want to because I think a lot of your listeners may not be super technical or might as well not care about the technical aspects. So, so let's give a let me give a historical view instead. So you know, history is important because it can tell you a lot about what future is going to be like, right? So let's let's give it a historical perspective and and then you can tell me if you know we are going somewhere and you can keep me honest and keep me back in the sure, sure. Uh, in the guardrails okay so, so so cybersecurity you know has been around for a while since the computers have been there it used to be not obviously called cybersecurity back then i don't think there were too many names also associated with this so let's talk about 80s and 90s right when computers were just basically coming into the world um it was basically for teenagers to hack at that time. You know, people were, uh, kids were, uh, school kids were basically breaking into networks of uh, phone companies, etc. And, you know, they were they were doing things that were not really super important or having a much of an enterprise impact, really. Mm-hmm. Um, then around uh, 90s, you know, there was, there was an underground movement where... Um, all these kids who were individually doing things, they started getting into organization in the sense that, oh, let's share our knowledge, mm-hmm. right? So that's when we basically conferences like DEFCON, et cetera, came about, uh, magazine, um, e-zines, mm-hmm. uh, such as FRAC basically came about, bulletin board systems came about at that point as well. So uh, so this is about 90s, right? And then... Uh, uh, in 2000, there was a seismic shift, actually. So, till 2000, um, it was basically kids, no real financial impact, maybe some financial impact, but um, but not really that much. In 2000, what, what changed was organized crime in the world started getting really involved into, um, you know, hacking. I suppose and- the internet was becoming more mainstream. Um, so more people started to have access to the internet. So I think that might have accelerated the concerns. Exactly. Uh, E-commerce really took off, right, during mm-hmm. that time. Mm-hmm. And and that changed the way organized crime looked at, um, uh, you know, these things, mm-hmm. quote-unquote things. Mm-hmm. So uh, in 2000s, basically a whole bunch of retailers, you know, uh, uh, all public record, you know, TJX, uh, I think in the UK there, TKX, mm-hmm. uh, and a few other ret- retailers got um, compromised. They they were asked to, you know, uh, 
They were asked to spend millions of dollars to investigate what was going on. Um, and there were basically groups of people who were using these skills for security skills to break into companies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that sort of changed a little bit, uh, you know, because the enterprises were not really thinking about security till then. Mm-hmm. So, but they realized that, okay, wait a minute. If we don't make things secure, we will actually start losing money now. That was, in my humble opinion, that was a real change that happened around 2000, late 2000s, actually. So I, I was going to say, do you think companies today take security seriously? Because we still keep hearing of quite quite a few big names, you know, who, who you know stored passwords in, in an unencrypted format or, you know, something like that. I mean, even 20 years later. So, but basically what you're saying is with the turn of the century, uh, with the internet uh, adoption uh, accelerating and hackers now orchestrating more sophisticated hacks to compromise uh, financial side of the companies. Therefore, when companies start to lose money, they start to focus on what I, can we do to make it better. I, I don't think that things were super sophisticated even in late 2000s actually right. yeah so it was basically you know uh, the hackers were slightly ahead of the game than other people so what you were saying is the, the the attacks were not sophisticated but the organizations were so um lame or not sleeping yeah prepared whatever you want to say but basically what you're saying is a bunch of teenagers high school kids were smarter than these big corporations and there are tons of engineers that they hired because the collective of them couldn't think about things that a 16-year-old or a 13-year-old would think of, and it, it was in back, some ways, yeah, yes. Yeah. And they were and they were starting to be recruited by uh, what you would call the organized crime, you know. Mm-hmm. So these kids, they just knew computers. These kids may were coming from a variety of different backgrounds, and they were just basically drawn to the thrill of. Mm. Uh, crime yeah. and yeah. organized crime kind of type tapped into that potential and uh, there we went. So Rajat, okay, one quick question here. So were these hacks happening because there were bad policies not implemented in these corporations or were they happening because of bad software that was lending itself vulnerable to attacks? What was the I main think... reason? I think there was a mix. So uh, there was a mix of poor hygiene mm. and also in certain cases, like for example, uh, you know, uh, like the DJX breaches, for example, um, those were perpetrated because the, of the use of wired equivalent privacy, which mm-hmm. is VEP in Wi-Fi systems. Right. I think, uh, you know, see. these days, these days you would see that these are not even these kinds of ciphers are not even supported by a lot of, um, uh, you know, your Wi-Fi routers, for example. Mm-hmm. And that's for a right reason, you know. But So it was part misconfiguration, part software vulnerabilities. Uh, but you can, what, what these kids were essentially able to do was put all of these th- things together, like chain them together mm-hmm. to figure out. Right. This is how this entire system works, mm-hmm. and they were used. They were able to abuse it to the advantage, right? Uh, right. To their advantage, right, right. So what you are telling me is that although security has been 
a concern in, in, in less understood format in the 80s and 90s, but since the advent of, of 2000, basically since the start of the century, um, this became more prominent and more uh, revealing in the way the attacks were actually happening. And therefore, I think yeah, there is another aspect here. So we are looking at the enterprise view, I guess, probably because by prior background as a consultant, you know, I'm thinking primarily enterprises, but think about it this way. Uh, the common person also started getting impacted, right? Because, mm. okay, you, if your credit card is lost and someone has sold it onto the, um, you know, on these sites for a couple of pennies yeah, uh, and guess what? They made a fraudulent purchase. Now right. you, you are, the, you as a common person, have to call the credit card companies and say, hey, wait a minute, I see some fraudulent actions, right? Mm -hmm. Now, uh, this is how, you know, so till 2000, people were not impacted, right? Right. But in 2000s, even common people started getting impacted because of these, uh, you know, uh, these yeah, abuses. Yeah. So basically what you're saying is when e-commerce became mainstream, uh, more people were doing commercial transactions, a combination of bad hygiene policies not implemented in corporations, some poor software choices or, uh, you know, Ethernet protocols um, like WEP, a combination basically made these things a lot more easier to uh, orchestrate. Right. Okay, so tell me, this is basically the commercial side of it, but, you know, these attacks have been becoming more and more sophisticated, like um, WannaCry happened a few years ago. Uh, this was a big issue and affected millions of PCs around the world. Is this really a PC problem or people having Macs and Linux boxes uh, and mobile phone operating systems are also vulnerable? So these, so today the world has changed, right? Today, every person in this world has a computer in their watch, in their phone, in their car, in their, um, mm -hmm. you know, Mac, like uh, MacBooks, mm -hmm. uh, Windows PCs, uh, or maybe Linux servers or Linux, uh, you know, uh, desktops even. Uh, so, so people do have a presence of all of these things, right? In mm -hmm. their hands now. And, uh, essentially everything runs on software right so mm -hmm. obviously you know there is hardware and then on top of hardware you have software mm -hmm. and software is the one that gives people uh, the experience that right. they tend to have uh, using um, software and you know okay you're using your iphone for example right so if you're using an iphone uh, the hardware has some capabilities and the software is providing the user experience and, you know, it is utilizing the, and squeezing every ounce of energy that your processor is able to uh, process. Right. So, so, so the software bit is sort of, you cannot detach it from the world, right? So the software bit is super important because that's what gives people the interface to interact. So what you're saying hardware. is that wherever there is software, it's vulnerable. Never mind if it's a PC or a Mac exactly. or, or, or an Android. Um, or, or maybe your, uh, you know, diabetes injection pumps, for example. Right. Or maybe. Okay. Or, I see. Or mm -hmm. maybe your nuclear submarine. Yes. Uh, anything that is using a computer is relying on software, and software has vulnerabilities. So it is, 
so so the way it is very interesting to look at it instead of saying oh what is vulnerable is 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 my pc safe or is my mm-hmm. but but more if you just take a step back and look at a world in a uh, in a more from a outside the box it is all software in the end okay and software so it's interesting bugs. so it's very interesting you say software because um i mean i, I agree uh, it is certainly the the interface for anyone to be able to operate the underlying hardware uh, but surely security isn't a software only issue so i'll come to that in a second but tell me one more thing um do you do you really believe that actually a lot of the cybersecurity concerns are becoming more relevant because state actors are getting involved and you're getting state actor oriented attacks more and more is that right so so the, i was going through this, uh, the world of cybersecurity right so and we reached in the 2000s right mm. so there's something something different happened in 2010 right right so in after the 2010s what started happening is there was a very interesting uh, attack on iran's nuclear facilities uh, and according to wall street journal and new york times and all reported media really um uh, this was perpetrated by the united states government and uh, the israeli government working together uh-huh. right okay. so this this uh, so if you uh, if you don't know anything about stuxnet i'm not going to give you uh, 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 the, uh, i'm not going to give you the deep down of it but uh, at a higher level basically what happened is the us government sent some malware to uh, the iranian scientists the iranian scientists uh, were impacted by this malware which changed the way the nuclear centrifuge machines in the natanz facility worked so right. i see yeah i've heard of that one yeah 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 this is about the time when uh you know there was uh, there was a lot of tension between the us and iran related mm-hmm. to uh you know nuclear enrichment sure and suddenly basically what happened is tuxnet came about it uh, it purportedly changed the way um of these facilities worked and thereby what us was able to do was able they were able to coerce iran into doing things like uh, getting into like treaties and things like that so yeah, it yeah. was the first time that so, some kind of a cyber attack was used to uh, do some political or a geopolitical arm twisting but i mean this um, stuxnet is is more well known and much better documented but you know with all of these elections getting rigged and so on i mean i think this this is getting far wider reach than people originally imagined um i mean with you guys you know the us elections are not very far away in a few months time um this 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 has got to be now a combination of not just being a software issue or a hardware issue but perhaps more of a social in a and a heavily state sponsored uh backing right it, it, security is taking a different dimension isn't it it's not it's not yes. just bad software and poor hygiene and bad hardware but indeed i think i think at some level you know what what has happened is that software has gotten into people's hands and thereby in people's lives so for example today people eat with the help of uber eats people people uh, communicate with people using facebook mm-hmm. uh, so software is a part of i mean today we are we are using 
technology to talk to each other right so so software and technologies have got gotten so intertwined with our lives that there is uh, if if this technology is what people are relying upon to communicate thoughts and this technology can be abused by organizations that want to control your behaviors and thoughts then coercion is possible you know election security i think you mentioned you know this is uh, this has been uh, this was long thought of being uh, oh wait a minute you know there is a reason why people are still relying on paper based ballots right um, this is a real issue however i think the way i think about it is that the misinformation the fake news problem mm-hmm. and uh, you know the things that happened so so brexit and the political things like us mm-hmm. elections of 2016 you know where state actors have gotten the hold of uh, technology companies in a weird way right so while none of these companies would admit any wrongdoing or would say yeah. oh wait a minute it was just probably a misconfiguration or a misaligned policy right at the end of the day Uh, what it results is is some kind of an unauthorized access yeah. that a state actor previously did not have but sure. now they do have sure so so basically this is a very complex topic and you know it's been in the news cambridge analytica facebook and all the rest i don't want to go into that side uh, more at this point of time but let's come back to this aspect of security that you're talking about that in 2010 stuxnet made it clear that state actors can perpetrate very sophisticated attacks and since then i think that different countries have been in the news for hacking this and hacking that but surely security is not just a software problem right um, exactly so tell me what are your views on security being impacted by poor hardware design or verification <laughs> So, so that again is a topic which is probably worth uh, maybe months to talk about but <laughs> uh, but but i think the key, what what ends up happening is that you know so so software uh, hardware bugs um as you're very well aware much more than i am have not been uncommon right so mm-hmm. for example i think in 1990s there was a there was an intel foof bug yeah right so the intel foof bug would allow uh you know someone to put an illegal instruction that would basically put the cpu in a locked state and there's no way to get out unless you until you powered off the machine right so so these kinds of issues have existed but now i think with uh, with issues such as spectre and meltdown right, right. Uh, surfacing yeah. you know where where uh, someone can issue side channel attacks against your um machines uh, speculative execution which is uh, which which is in a way uh, the way to think about it from a layman's perspective is oh i can i can look at my current machine's state and i could look at my machine's state at a different period in time and make a determination about some of the system's internal properties right mm-hmm. so so for example oh i'm able to get one byte of your password if i query the cache for mm-hmm. example let's see how long that querying the cache takes mm-hmm. right so if these kinds of things start happening then you start seeing that there is a, a situation that wait a minute software can actually exploit hardware problems 
and these hardware problems can then uh, you know result in compromising yeah. of user yeah. information at that point so that's a very good example you gave because i was going to just say that it's not necessarily the case that you have to be right close to the hardware you could actually orchestrate attacks over a network uh, using sophisticated software and then peeps into the state of the hardware to then if it's not like a proper secure zone on the hardware then if you can actually get access to confidential data then those are also quite um, likely impossible and um, are you are you following what's happening on the Mitre CWE um, side? Yeah, so MITRE, I think, has been in the US at least. You know, they have been an amazing mm-hmm. uh, resource for uh, enterprises, really. Mm-hmm. So they have their attack framework. They have the common weaknesses enumeration, which is CWE. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they have uh, the NVD, I believe, which is the National Vulnerability Database that is a catalog of uh, known vulnerabilities uh, across the world in software and right. uh, firmware and hardware. Uh, so MITRE so, so has been doing an amazing job in general. Uh, so... So definitely hats off uh, to the, uh, I'm not sure if MITRE is a government-owned entity or not, but I think they're a not-for-profit at least, at the very least. But I don't know, maybe they're also related to the U.S. government, I don't know. Uh, having said that, the the work that, uh, you know, thing, places like MITRE are doing, the JP CERT, Japanese Computer uh, Emergency Response Team, um, they're doing, that is all in the public domain, and it is just phenomenal work in general which um, which is very helpful for mm-hmm. enterprises to protect against sophisticated adversaries so rajat if i'm not wrong something that you used to do before i'm not sure if you were doing this uh, in other roles but you used to be an ethical hacker as well right so could you share with our users what an ethical hacker does um, sure so ethical hacker penetration tester or you know uh, but these are these are typically what you know people give names to this profession where right. essentially what companies do is they recruit people such as myself to uh, break into their computer networks or their yeah, web applications or other applications or anything really they say oh wait I'm gonna take this laptop can you break the encryption on this laptop for example or, or essentially giving an adversarial view mm-hmm. of what system they are developing right now while this is supremely common today uh, in the 20, 20s, uh, it is very common for organizations to subject their machines, systems to such an such a professional. Um, in the hardware world, there is a different, uh, you know, uh, while hardware security is important, but uh, the ad- I'm not entirely sure how much the adversarial view actually comes into yeah, uh, yeah, the, it's a different the hardware design. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's a good point. So basically, you're saying for software, if somebody wants to an- analyze the vulnerability, then ethical hacking, penetration testing is the way to go. So security is a software and hardware problem and can be addressed to some extent with a combination of user diligence, better corporate policies, better software design, better hardware design too. Um, 
So, you know, we, we look at formal methods in Axiomize and we're very much focused in understanding how formal methods can be used to uh, address a range of hardware design verification issues. Um, do you have any uh, familiarity with formal? Do you have any thoughts on how formal methods could play a role in addressing any of the aspects of security we discussed today? Uh, I think so far, I have a limited understanding of formal verification. Obviously, I'm not an expert at it by any stretch of imagination. Um, I think primarily, you know, my experience with formal verification uh, and equivalence checking and things like that has been from the perspective of, uh, you know, a reverse engineer, for example. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, there is, uh, so what in the security world, People utilize, you know, symbolic execution, um, which is essentially saying, "Oh, how does my system work?" And I'm going to try to model it in a uh, in a way where I can uh, use things like SMT solvers. Right. Um, oh, you to... are familiar with SMT solvers, okay? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so you can use uh, the symbolic execution engine for. Uh, you know, both adversarial purposes or defense purposes. Like, for example, um, if you're trying to find out whether uh, a, a vulnerability is exploitable, mm-hmm. right? So what that means is if you've come into a vulnerable portion of a code, you want to see whether that vulnerable portion of the code is reachable from one place of the... Uh, All right, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a yeah. very classic use model for formula, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So in these situations, the, but this is uh, this is to just say, oh, okay, if I follow this path in code, I will reach this vulnerable uh, code location. Now, this can be used by defender defenders for fixing the issue, obviously, but it can also be used by attackers to say, oh, okay, this is how I'm going to attack the system, mm-hmm. right? So, so I and the same thing can actually be done. You know, for equivalence checking, for example, when you're trying to deobfuscate malware, for example, right? right. So you, you you're trying to say, okay, if I automated deobfuscation of really difficult, you know, uh, written on obfuscation for malware, right? Is basically when someone decides to make the malware so difficult to read mm-hmm. that person is not able to determine what it is going to do, right? This is a very standard technique followed by malware authors. Now, uh, on the reverse side, on the uh, defender side, it is for the reverse engineers to determine what this this malware is doing. So how do you do that in an automated fashion? Typically, this consumes a lot of human power and intelligence, right? But there have been a lot of really interesting researchers, uh, you know, Rolf Rolls and a few other people who have done really interesting work using uh, symbolic execution to uh, deobfuscate these obfuscation engines, right? So uh, this has been the area where I have uh, interacted with uh, you know, symbolic execution, SMT solvers, mm-hmm. and uh, but not so much on the verification side, right? Yeah, but, but this more, is in a way uh, a verification exercise. It's basically vulnerability assessment, malware assessment, obfuscation, deobfuscation. But you're, you're saying you you're familiar with the tools uh, that people have been using, which uh, is fascinating actually, because you know we look at hardware and we look at all of the ways in which that could be manipulated. Um, you know, sometimes accidents happen because not necessarily by intent, you know, 
but you know, bad choices, etc. So, so this is so. Where do you see the security field evolving, either from a software and hardware point of view, and then in terms of the solution space? Where do we see this going? Where do we meet? <laughs> yeah, and where are we going with this? Are we going to actually? see a better uh, design standard verification standard across the industry for software and hardware um, how much do we actually even know in the big scheme of things that we can say it's looking good we can solve this get it in hand in the next five to ten years so i'm not going to sit here and say it's all doom and gloom because the things have actually improved right so mm -hmm. for example uh, today every person in their hands has uh, usable uh, security, which does not cost them a lot. For example, uh, you have facial recognition, which is used for authentication to your phones, for example, or touch IDs, which are using fingerprints, things like that. So, mm -hmm. so this is available to people and it has made things easier for people. You have password managers and things like that, which can help people uh, remember not reuse passwords. And uh, they are complicated enough that if a website loses your password, you don't really care about it too much as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, have, having said that, this is really, a, um, it's a software, it's a bugs issue, right? And the question really that should be asked is, do we expect bugs to be basically eliminated ever in our lifetimes? Uh, I don't think we expect bugs to be eliminated ever in our lifetimes. If we don't expect bugs to be eliminated in our lifetimes, I don't believe security issues will go away as well. So, but having said that, it is possible that bugs uh, will reduce in proliferation, that there will be less bugs, that is possible. And that could mean that things would actually get better. And things are getting better. It's just that the world is also changing at the same time mm. things are getting better. Sure. So, <laughs> so that gap, unfortunately, of what we realize the ideal world should be and where things are today yeah. also keeps on increasing while the technology tries to close up on that gap. So, um, That's a very so is, uh, interesting perspective. Yeah, so I think you're, when you were saying they were never going to be eliminated, I was thinking of all of the news around COVID these days where it looks like we're going to live with this forever, but then... It's not the first time we'll be living with uh, known bugs and there are ways and means to get better at coping with them. And basically what you're saying is that this isn't going to be solved in the most perfect form. But as we continue to evolve, we would be taking evolutionary steps uh, to cope with making things better. So Yeah, exactly. I think uh, we, we, we will adapt and we will improve and the world will adapt and the world will change. So it will be an ongoing thing. The key thing to remember is uh, just like things like washing hands, for example, right? Yeah. There's no alternative to washing hands. Sure. You should wash hands. Sure. It's uh, the way I look at, you know, what, uh, for example, uh, Axiomize is doing or, for example, what other organizations are doing by doing penetration testing, things like that, is they, they're doing what is equivalent of, in the physical world as washing hands. They're trying to make sure that things are uh, kept clean to the extent that they're possible, uh, that, that are under their control, for example. Yeah, I mean, in hardware, I can certainly tell you we are still learning. Uh, uh, we take this approach to maximize that we're looking at requirements-driven design and verification. So if it isn't a requirement, then it's a bug. And if 
it doesn't match with anything which has been explicitly specified as an intent, then it's a bad behavior, whether it could lend itself to vulnerability or a functional bug is a separate matter. Hey, it sounds good. Um, so I was just looking at a clock and it looks like we might be running out of time. So um, let me ask you, um, if you wanted to give five tips, I'm sure you can give tons of useful tips, but let's say you wanted to give five tips to our users listening today on how to be safe on the internet and how to be more secure. What would be those five tips? Uh, sure. So I think that I would say top five tips would be, uh, let's start with number one. Uh, okay, you should update your computers, phones, uh, cars, uh, whatever is relying on software. Just make sure they're up to date with all the software patches. Uh, second tip uh, that I would say would be uh, just don't share passwords with people, you know, or put it on post-it notes, etc. Uh, and use things like password managers, for example, uh -huh. right? Uh, which which rotate passwords, use complicated passwords, etc. Uh, uh, and the third tip I would say is use two-factor authentication for things that support two-factor authentication. So there's a site called twofactorauth.org. Uh -huh. So that's a really good site. You can go visit it and what it tells you is how to set two-factor authentication for the site that you're using or the application that you're using. Um, the fourth one I would say would be uh, removing administrative access while browsing the internet if possible. Uh, you know, just browse as a regular user. You don't need administrative rights. Uh, so uh, it, it, it really reduces your attack surface. And, and when I'm talking about attack service, uh, the last and the most important one I would say is if you don't use it, remove it. So if you're not using some software, uninstall it. If you're uh, not using a machine, uh, don't leave it on. You know, this is the same exact advice for enterprises and um, and for home users. You know, Interesting. Uh, Mm -hmm. If if you have it on your network, if you have it on your machines, you have to keep updating it, keep patching it. So if you're not using it, just get the complexity out of your world and remove it. <laughs> this last one is very interesting because you say the same in hardware. If there, if there is redundant code in the design, it will be exploited. What you're saying is <laughs> if, if there is redundancy in your house of machines and software or in the corporate environments, that would be vulnerable. This is great. So, hey, thanks very much for coming by. Uh, I'm sure we have to get you back here again and we need to go more deep dive into some of the issues around uh, vulnerability assessment and threat modeling. Uh, but I, I wanted to take this opportunity to set the scene for an introductory session on this topic. We've been meaning to do this for quite some time. Um, um, are you able to tell us where you are heading after uh, BlackRock? Or is it top secret? <laughs> uh, so I'm heading for a, it's not super top secret. I'm, I'm going to be working for a cloud services provider uh, starting tomorrow. So Oh, nice. Uh, okay. okay, great. <laughs> well, I, I wish you very well for your, for your you future. So for, yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for inviting me here. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Rajat. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. So friends, I hope you liked this chat today, do let us know at info at xmise.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Do let us know if you liked it and let us know what else would you like us to talk about. Thank you very much and stay safe. Mm -hmm.